Today's uh, passage, the text for today's sermon is found in Psalm 131. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, Psalm 131. It's a short psalm, three verses. I'll read the whole psalm and we'll focus particularly on verses 1 and 2 this morning. Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. In preaching this passage today, I've chosen to look at eight ways in which we can directly apply this text to our lives. Eight ways that we can calm and quiet our souls by not occupying ourselves with things that are too great, too profound, too marvelous, too high for us. Before I get into those ways, I want to first give a brief explanation of these first two verses here and an example from the life of the author of this psalm, King David. And then we'll go into those areas of application. So look at this text to begin with. David begins this psalm by telling his Lord that his heart is not haughty and his eyes are not lofty. He goes on to explain that he does not concern himself with things too high, too profound, or too marvelous for him. So what is he talking about? Now David was called to be the king of Israel, the ruler of a commonwealth, the potentate of God's chosen people, the supreme magistrate of a holy nation. If there was anyone on the earth at the time David wrote the psalm that should have been concerned with important and weighty matters, it was King David. Nevertheless, he begins this short song with perhaps a startling proclamation that he is not concerned with things too high or too marvelous for him. Here, the king of Israel acknowledges his creaturely limitations. So what does he mean? What exactly does he mean by this? That his his heart is not haughty and his eyes are not lifted up. I believe at the very least it means this, brothers and sisters, that David did not occupy himself with thoughts and questions that were beyond his understanding. The why God questions or the how God questions. It is reasonable that prior to this, David was in fact struggling with a soul in turmoil within him, a soul that was not at peace, a soul that was not calm and quiet. If we suppose that this psalm was written around the time of Saul's persecution of David, we may readily imagine why David's soul was in turmoil within him. When David was hiding in a cave, running for his life from Saul, He penned these words in Psalm 57. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Perhaps one day David sat in that cave, 
or somewhere else in the wilderness of En Gedi, fleeing from Saul for his life, and was overcome with occupying himself with the profound why God questions. Why are things the way they are? Perhaps it was after he was driven to act like a madman before Achish, the king of Gath, that David was overcome with questions for which he could not answer. Why did God call him, have him be anointed as king by Samuel, and then turn Saul against him? Why was he running and fleeing for his life when he had done no wrong to Saul? Why did God allow Ahimelech and the priests of Nob to be murdered by Saul because they were loyal to David? Or he may have found himself asking the how God questions. How will this ever change? How will I ever get to serve as king with Saul constantly seeking my life? How is this helping your people, O God, to have them divided in their loyalty between me and Saul? And so David's mind raced with questions that were too high for him. Why is this happening? How will this ever change, God? Why am I going through this? You see, David could never know why God chose to have his path to royalty, his path to become king of Israel, to be one of fleeing in terror from Saul. David, as great a theologian as he was, was unable to comprehend the secret mysteries of God's divine plan. Furthermore, David was not meant to occupy himself with those things. He was not to be concerned with the hidden will of God. He was to be focused on important matters. As a king, he had received the responsibility of leading a nation and establishing his throne by righteousness, Proverbs 16.12. He was to rule over men with justice, ruling in the fear of the Lord, 2 Samuel 23.3. But when he says that he does not concern himself with great matters here, he's not talking about those things. He's talking about those things that are too high for him, that are too profound for him. And so when David sat in those caves with circumstances around, outside of his soul, in complete disarray, he sang in Psalm 57, I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. David came to realize that God did in fact have a purpose, a plan for everything. So David grew in humility, He realized he could not figure out everything, but he could trust in God who fulfills his purpose in our lives. He no longer felt that he deserved better circumstances or even simply a better explanation of why things were the way they were. His eyes were not raised too high. They weren't lifted up, seeking to pierce the shadow of the hidden counsel of God. It was only after David realized that he could not concern himself with matters that belonged to God alone that his soul was quieted and calmed within him. He says in verse 2 of our text, Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. The weaned child has reached another stage in its process of growth. In fact, the Hebrew word for wean has the meaning of to ripen. It speaks of advancing to a further stage in the baby's relationship with his mother. So David says that his soul has reached another stage of development with God. He says, I've calmed and quieted my soul. Again, this shows us that taking control of our inner thoughts is something we must deliberately do. 
I have calmed and quieted my soul. David had to calm his soul from being so needy and demanding as a newborn child demands milk. David's soul had developed to the place where he didn't demand from God the answers to the questions that so easily drive us to anxiety, depression, and angst. Part of the development of a, of a weaned child is that of self-awareness. David, when he wrote this, probably had in mind a two- to three-year-old child, possibly a little bit older, but right around that range. A child this age is able to understand more about who he is and who his mother is. There comes the point where that child knows that his mother will give him food, and he no longer needs to demand it. A small baby simply screams for milk. A weaned child may genuinely pester us with petitions for food, but his soul is not in utter turmoil within him because he has not yet received his lunch. Yet in the case of a baby, the screaming that ensues prior to feeding time would have you believe the small baby's life is about to end. And so David had developed in his relationship with God and realized that he could not function trying to know all the details of God's hidden wisdom. He realized that he was not capable, as a mere creature, as great a man as he was, of understanding the profound and marvelous inner workings of God's decrees. And so David was humbled. Though he was called and anointed to be king of Israel, though there was much for him to concern himself with, he was no longer concerned with those things that were too great for him, the things too big for him. He would leave those things to his heavenly Father. This adjusting of his gaze had a calming effect on David. It gave his soul peace because he knew he could simply rest in God as a small child rests in the bosom of his mother. The place where that child has received nourishment month after month, now the child knows that his mother will not forsake him or leave him. And so it is this same adjusting of our gaze, of the gaze that we must do in our lives. As we move our gaze from things that are too high for us, too profound for us, and fix our gaze on the things that we are to be concerned with, we will find that we too can calm and quiet our souls within us, just like David did, who certainly was a man who had a lot of external turmoil going on around him. If you read through 1 Samuel chapter 20 to around 26, you read the account of Saul's persecution of David. David just fleeing from one place to another with complete turmoil around him, and yet he can say, I've calmed and quieted my soul within me. Despite what's going on around me, I am at peace like a weaned child in the bosom of its mother. So with that foundation laid, I'd like us to now move on to application and look at eight ways in which we may be prone to lift up our eyes to matters too high, too profound, too marvelous for us. The point is this, when we concern ourselves with things that are too high for us, we will be like a newborn baby that is screaming its head off for milk, even though his mother is about to feed him in two minutes. We just want that child to know, we will take care of you, just wait. But when we are focused on answers to questions that we can't comprehend, our soul will be in turmoil within us. We will be working our souls up into a hot and heavy mess because we are trying to understand things that are not meant for us. On the other hand, think about the opposite of verse 1. Look at verse 1 again. If David said that he does not 
concern himself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. What then does he concern himself with? What is the opposite of concerning yourself with things too great or too profound for you? The key text to answer that question is found in the very law of God that David meditated on all the day long. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. If you want to turn there for a moment, this is a key verse that will help us as we look at application. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, contains a powerful principle that is at the root of understanding this passage and the application of this passage. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The secret things of God did not belong to David, and they do not belong to us. The answer to the question of why David had to spend his days running like a dog from Saul did not belong to David. That answer was too high for him. The answer to many of our questions do not belong to us. If we try to grasp for them, we will simply end up wearying ourselves. However, there are things that do belong to us. There are things that are not too marvelous for us. There are things that are not too high for us. There are things that we are to be occupied in. Those things are the things that God has revealed to us in His law. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. We are to occupy ourselves, we are to concern ourselves with applying God's law to our lives. We are to concern ourselves with implementing God's commandments in our lives and the lives of our children. This is to be our focus. This is to be where our gaze is fixed. And so when David calmed and quieted his soul, he said to Saul, who was persecuting him, The Lord judge between me and thee, and the Lord avenge me of thee, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. 1 Samuel 24:12. David was content to obey God and leave everything else, in this case, the judgment of Saul and his own personal vindication and deliverance in the hands of an, of an omnipotent God. It didn't belong to David to do that which only God could do, but it did belong to David to do that which God commanded David to do. And so it is with us. When we occupy ourselves with matters too great, too high for us, our souls are in turmoil. So let's now look at eight ways we occupy ourselves with things too great for us and how we can calm our souls like David did. Number one, we may occupy ourselves with the question of how God can turn this sickness for good, how God can use this sickness for good. Our physical life and health is more frail than we probably like to admit. One microscopic virus can be the demise of our earthly existence. When we or someone we love is faced with a serious or life-threatening sickness or accident, we face a great trial. Only part of that trial is the temptation to occupy ourselves with things too high for us, but is still a part of that trial. We can become consumed 
with the thoughts of why God would allow this sickness at this time to this person in these circumstances. In many ways, these questions are natural. We wonder how God could possibly use this sickness to further his purpose in our lives. We think God may have overestimated our ability to praise him through the storm of physical suffering and illness. We think, God, I don't think you realize that this sickness is going to derail my plans for your kingdom. We think, God, don't you realize that so much more could be accomplished if I had good health? Not perfect health, but at least health with no serious issues. If the thorn in Paul's flesh in 2 Corinthians 12 is indeed a physical malady, then we may learn how Paul calmed and quieted his soul. In 2 Corinthians 12.8, Paul mentions that he asked God not once, not twice, but thrice to remove the thorn from his flesh. The answer that Paul received from God is one all Christians can take is their direct answer from their Heavenly Father if he does not remove a thorn from your flesh, a sickness, an illness, a disease, an accident. The Lord said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul was able to quiet and calm his soul. He stopped asking. He stopped occupying himself with things too high for him. Paul wanted the thorn gone. He wanted to be relieved from that suffering, but it was above his pay grade to understand why God wouldn't remove it. Instead, his job was to occupy himself with obedience to Christ in his life. To be sure, we ought to find comfort that there is a divine design to all pain and suffering, even yours. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. All things includes pain, suffering, sickness, illness, illness, and death. Nevertheless, sometimes this isn't enough for us. We want to know how God is going to use my cancer for good. We want to know how God is going to use my paralysis for good. We may receive those answers in part in this life, but if we occupy ourselves with with things that God may keep secret from us, how all these things will work out, we will exacerbate our suffering, not ameliorate it. We will become inner-focused instead of outward-focused on how we may obey God through this sickness. God calls us in our sickness to obedience, by trusting his plan for our lives despite the current circumstances, Romans 8.28, remembering the suffering and pain that Jesus endured, Hebrews 12.12, and seeking healing from God's good hand, James 5.14, among other things. If we lift our gaze on why, how, why is this happening, we will be wearying ourselves with trying to find answers for things that are too high for us rather than focusing on what we are to occupy ourselves with which is obedience to God's word. Well, number two, another way that we may occupy ourselves with things too high for us is to be concerned about how God brings about justice when we or others are treated unfairly. How will God bring about justice when we or others are treated unfairly? The example from the life of David is poignant here. We too may feel at times that we or someone we know is being treated like David was by Saul. After David cut the corner of Saul's robe, demonstrating that he could have killed him, David cried out from a distance, 
For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. We too may feel at times that we have been wronged, treated unfairly. While it is true that injustice does occur between man and man in this world, there is no injustice on God's part. It is not unjust of God to allow us to be treated unjustly by others, for we don't deserve any blessing from God. Nevertheless, God will avenge every single act of injustice that has occurred in this world. If men will have to give an account for every idle word they've spoken, Matthew 12:36, how much more will they be brought to account for injustices against other people made in the image of God? Again, we may and we ought to take real comfort in the biblical truth that God says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Romans 12, 19. This is not a threat, but a biblical promise that means every wrong will be righted. Every sin of injustice will be paid for, either by Christ on the cross, or will be punished at the great and final day of judgment. King David used similar language, as Paul did in Romans 12, Quoting Deuteronomy 32, when David said to Saul, the king, of, uh, the king at the time, May the Lord avenge me against you, 1 Samuel 24:12. David's posture towards Saul was one of respect and honor, but it did not prevent him from saying what some would construe, a vindictive, construe as a vindictive threat. May the Lord avenge me against you. However, calling upon the Lord to avenge us against those who have wronged us is not seeking personal revenge, but rather professing a biblical promise. It will be done whether we say it or not. Sin will be dealt with. God will deal with injustice. The problem comes, this is where we begin to lift our gaze too high, when we occupy ourselves with how God will do this. David learned to leave the results to God. He would live in obedience to God, refusing to take personal revenge on Saul by walking blamelessly and in the fear of the Lord. It is beyond us to fully comprehend how the judge of all the earth will balance the great scales of justice. It is above our ability to grasp how God will right every single wrong that has occurred in the course of trillions and trillions of interactions between billions and billions of people over the course of thousands and thousands of years. We cannot possibly grasp that. And we shouldn't try to. The small child cannot understand all that is involved in his parents providing for him, giving him a warm meal, having a roof over his head, clothes on his back, a bed to sleep in, all that went into that, all the bills that had to be paid, all the work, all the labor. And the parents, his parents don't want him to occupy himself with those things. They want him to enjoy his food, his room, his bed, his, his time with his family, and they want him to listen to their instructions and obey. If we spend our time worrying about whether or not we will be vindicated and justice will be done in our days, our souls will not be calm and quiet. On the contrary, they will be in utter unrest within us. When confronted with injustice, God calls us to fix our gaze on what we are to be concerned with, obedience to Him by looking to the Lord to take vengeance, Romans 12:19, by not rejoicing when our enemies falls, when our enemy falls, Proverbs 24:17 and praying for and showing kindness to those who have wronged us, Matthew 5, 44. And so children, if you find yourself saying, 
throughout the day or at some point. That's not fair. Remember, it may not be fair, but you will find no peace for your soul by demanding that every single act of unfairness in your life be immediately rectified, be immediately made right. You won't find peace in that. If you cry out and demand justice on your timetable every time you're wronged, you will have a soul within you that is in turmoil and angst, and you will not be at peace and happy. Number three, why the wicked are allowed to prosper. In Psalm 73, the psalmist says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He goes on in verse 13 to say that it was in vain that he tried to keep his heart clean. Why am I trying to do what's right? Why am I walking in God's word and the the wicked are prosperous? You see, he was trying to figure out things that were too great and too marvelous for him. He can't know that what he did was in vain. He can't see behind God's divine plan. God alone is the judge of what is in vain, and we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. And so when we are envious of the wicked and we we wonder why they're allowed to prosper, it destroys the peace that is within us. Imagine a two-year-old child resting in the arms of his mother and wishing his mother was someone else. It's unthinkable. The child is at peace because he is right where he belongs and he doesn't need to worry about anything or anyone else. Allowing thoughts of envy or frustration about the prosperity of evildoers leads to a troubled soul. The psalmist in Psalm 73 says that it was a wearisome task, wearisome for him to try and figure out why the wicked were prospering. That's because it was too much for him. He was not meant to figure out that riddle. It's only until he comes to the sanctuary of God and he rests in the fact that God will do what is right in the end that he had peace within him. Concerning yourself with why the wicked prosper will end up causing you to lose peace and sleep. On the other hand, as one preacher put it, contentment is a wonderful cure for insomnia. In the face of the prosperity of the wicked, God calls us to concern ourselves with what? What is right before us, obedience to his revealed will. That is, to be content with what God has given us, 1 Timothy 6.8, and choosing to focus on what we have to give rather than being tempted to covet what we do not have, Proverbs 21.26. Number four, how may we apply this passage to mothers? Just like Martha, many women, especially mothers, can find themselves anxious and troubled about many things. The outer pressures of raising children is enough to make the soul within feel that it is overwhelmed. And with a task so important as raising children and shaping the future, it is understandable. As far as earthly affairs go, I can think of little more important than raising up the next generation as mothers care for their children. And so the questions can come in many forms. Am I doing a good enough job raising my children? Will my children turn out okay? Will they grow up to be God-honoring, people-loving, gospel-proclaiming men and women? Will they like me when I get older? Did I make the wrong choice to be a mother? Am I qualified to raise these children that God has given me? After all, I fail so much. Mothers, it is too high and too marvelous for you to figure out all these things. What God has revealed to you is not the answer to those questions necessarily. What He has revealed to you is His will for your life, His law for you as mothers, as wives. He commands you to love your husband and children, 
to be self-controlled in your temper, emotions, and actions, and be pure, and be kind, and submissive to your husband as you fulfill your task of working at home and managing the home, Titus 2, verses 4 and 8. Concern yourself with those things. Do not spend time thinking about things that are not for you. You can spend hours on your bed at night occupying yourself with matters that are too high for you, when you ought to simply be obeying God's law, which calls you to simply rest in Him and leave your labor in His hands. The psalmist says in Psalm 127, It is vain to rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for He gives to His beloved sleep. We are tempted to think that by concerning ourselves with things too high for us, that we will actually figure things out. We need to humble ourselves and realize that we cannot figure them out, and we are better off simply closing our eyes and going to sleep as a weaned child does in his mother's arms and focusing ourselves on obeying what God has set before us. Number five, how may we apply this to husbands and fathers? As men, sometimes we can find ourselves asking God for a greater opportunity, for more of a challenge, for an opportunity to, to lead others and to, and to be of service and make a difference in the world. And many men can be so focused on that and wondering why God hasn't given them the opportunity in life that they think they deserve or they would be best suited at, and their gaze is fixed on why things aren't the way they ought to be or how they could be. Instead, we need to fix our gaze on what is right before us, obedience to God and loving our wives and leading our children. Many men are, are distracted from their primary task because they're they're daydreaming about how things could be or how things would be better if they had a better job, better education, if they had made different choices earlier in life. We have an incredible mission as men that is right before us if we simply look at what God has set before us to be concerned with. To love your wife as Christ loves the church, Ephesians 5:25. To listen to her and seek to understand her unique struggle, temptations, and frustrations, 1 Peter 3, 7. To lead your children in the way of wisdom by applying God's word to their lives, Ephesians 6, 4. And so men, instead of looking at what we don't have or asking God why we are not given opportunities to do more, occupy yourself, concern yourself with what God has given you and what his law calls you to do with the people in your lives. Number six, a brief application for single people. Though most of us, are, all the adults here are married, um, we have um, young children that will grow up. Perhaps there's someone in your life that might need to hear this exhortation as well. One of the common temptations among young men and women is to concern themselves with their future. What will my future be? Who will I marry? What will I do? What will my career be? These are not unimportant questions. However, it is too high to occupy yourself with questions that are beyond us. The Apostle Paul once told a young man, what he should be occupying himself with, what he should be concerning himself with. In 1 Timothy 4.15, Paul tells the young man Timothy, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. What are these things that Paul has in mind? The verses immediately preceding his exhortation in 1 Timothy 4 reveal them. Devotion to good doctrine, verse 6. Training yourself for godliness, verse 7 an exhortation from the scriptures and teaching from God's word, verse 13. Even if 
Someone's not a young man called to be a pastor. They're to be occupied with these things. They're to be concerned with what is before them right now. There are many young men out there who are daydreaming about a future spouse, a future family, a future life on the mission field, instead of occupying themselves with the scriptures and applying the law of God to every area of their life and growing in personal holiness. Two more, very briefly, for young children. There's a special way this verse may be applied to you. You, just like me, need to realize that there are things too high for you to be concerned with. It is not for you to figure out why God has placed the parents over you that he has. It is not for you to figure out why you have the siblings that you have. God has a purpose in it. You don't need to know it. What you need to do is work on your obedience to God and your parents. It is not for you to know why God gives some families more things than he's given you, more toys, more games, more food, more vacations. It is not your place to wrestle with those things in your mind. If you want peace and happiness and contentment, simply occupy yourself with that which God has set before you. God has set before you parents to obey. He has set before you brothers and sisters to love and show kindness to. He has given you things to enjoy as gifts from his hand. Concern yourself with obeying God's law in your life and you will find peace and contentment in your soul just like what you feel when you snuggle up to your mother in a warm embrace. God has given you a great and simple commandment that you will find great blessing in occupying yourself with. The secret things are hidden, but God has revealed this to you. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Exodus 20, verse 12. Finally, the eighth way that we can be prone to occupying ourselves with things too high for us is how God will provide for tomorrow. This final item on this list of application is in many ways a summary of all. The posture of the weaned child is one of humble rest and trust in his mother. Our posture is to be the same. Just as God gave his law in Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, the things revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The Lord Jesus Christ reiterated this point in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. does not belong to you, dear Christian, to occupy yourself with tomorrow, with the future. It is too profound for you. It is too difficult to understand just how it is that God will provide for you in the future, whether it's a job or whether it's providing you the strength for a future trial that perhaps you think is coming. If you are trying to find grace today for tomorrow's trial, you're occupying yourself with things too marvelous for you. Again, what are we to be occupied with then? The Lord Jesus Christ says it clearly in verse 33 of Matthew 6. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We are to occupy ourselves with God's righteousness as revealed in his holy law that we might apply his commandments to every aspect of our lives. In conclusion, the charge is this. May your heart not be lifted up or your eyes raised too high. Do not occupy yourselves with things in your life that do not belong to you. God didn't design you to figure out how everything will work out. 
He didn't design you to completely understand everything he is doing behind the scenes. But he did design you to know and walk in his commandments. He did design you to do all the words of his law. He did design you to trust in him and find your peace and joy and rest and security and contentment and happiness in knowing that if you are in Christ, your heavenly Father will never allow anything to happen to you that is not for your good and his glory and the advancement of his kingdom. But how does he work all these things together for good? I don't know. But he does it. To trouble yourself with figuring that out as it relates to the things in your personal life would force you to lift your gaze higher than it ought to be. It would cause you to squirm out of the warm embrace of an all-knowing Father and try to figure things out on your own. Hope in the Lord and calm and quiet your soul within you as you apply these truths to your heart. Lord, I thank you for this time in your word. I pray that you would help us, like David, to calm and quiet our souls within us, that as we look around us in the world at large and even in our own personal lives, there is much that would cause us to be in turmoil within us, but for your spirit and your grace and your word in our lives. And so we pray, Lord, that we would put your word into action, we would apply it to our hearts, that we would not concern ourselves with things that are not for us, but we would occupy ourselves with things that you have revealed to us, your law, your commandments, your precepts, your testimonies. We think of the psalmist in Psalm 119, He said, the wicked lay in wait for him, but I will consider your testimonies. Even though there were men, thousands of men at Saul's command seeking David's life, he said, I will consider thy testimonies. Even though all around me is falling apart, I will be focused on your commandments and your word and how I might be obedient to your word and leave everything else in your hands. I pray that we would do that in our lives, that we might grow in our contentment and our joy and our love for you as we leave the things that are too high for us in your hands and focus on what you've given us to do, what you've called us to walk in, the commandments you've given us to obey, and that you'd bless us in our efforts as we do that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.